Folks, rolling along here on the Jake Feinberg Show, broadcasting, streaming live worldwide. Go to powertalk1210.com and you can stream all our local shows. It's a growing extraterrestrial radio station. And it's really, my show in itself is about philosophy, inspiration, enlightenment, and love. And uh, it's great to bring back one of my cognoscentes, Larry Coriel. Welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, Jake. How you doing, brother? I'm okay. How are you? I'm really, I'm, I'm marinating and I'm, I'm feeling great. And um, I've already talked to Gary Bartz today and uh, now I get a chance to talk to you. So it's... Uh, How's Gary? You know, he's committed to still having a band, which means, you know, he may, as a leader, he may not get paid, but the essential parts of having a band, a band that can play together and cultivate a sound and there isn't a lot of that or as much as there was when you were formative and he's very and you know what he you know he's gigging he's playing he's going to australia he's he's doing some work in the states and uh i just actually talked to him about a lot about barack obama and how proud he was of of obama if he was proud of obama so he's doing good okay but you know i he he sparked my my uh interest and i wanted to ask you about julian your son uh, yeah. You know, does Julian have a band that has coalesced, that can stay together, and that can hone their own sound? Yes. Can you talk about the band? Well, he's in the process of um, changing his band, but he, every time I go out, to, go out to L.A. on a Tuesday night, I think it's a Tuesday night, I sit in with him. This had when Gary, yeah. Gary Barth was in his heyday with I think he was playing with, with McCoy and Miles too. Yeah, he said Miles would he said Miles would 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 play gigs just to sharpen the band, and he wouldn't get Miles wouldn't get paid. The band would get paid, but Miles was just doing it. Well, Miles had plenty of money. Man. Well, that's time, true. That's true. That's true. Every time Miles, I mean, let's get get real here. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Every time Miles uh, needed some bread, he would call Columbia Records and. The next day, the money would be there. <laughs> okay. Thank you for putting that in perspective. I appreciate it. I that. mean, did you see the Miles movie? Not yet. Well, that movie is... The whole movie revolves around a recording date that Miles did with me. Okay. But I'm not mentioned in the... Uh, I'm not mentioned. But that recording that Miles produced of me is the, fo- the, the focal point of the caper. It's kind of a caper movie. It's a caper. Wait, okay, so Larry, yeah, but, could I mean, what? Let's be more specific here. This was a Teo Macero Columbia date. What, what was this about? Teo was there. Mm-hmm. And Miles was there, and he had two other synthesizer players there, and he had T.M. Stevens, and he had uh, Al Foster, and uh, all that week up in Connecticut where he was staying, he was writing the writing the composition. And gradually teaching me how how I wanted to play it. Can you talk about the best you remember what he was teaching you exactly? How how would he communicate? I remember everything. If you read my autobiography, it's, it's in in there down to the last detail. And just to be clear, this was um, uh, so this was wow. This was done twelve days. Session details, Studio B, March 2nd, 1978, 12 days before Jake Feinberg was born. Yeah, well, 
I've been I've been around a long time. <laughs> I want to read you. But a, Miles yeah. Miles was great. Mm-hmm. It was great being mentored by him, and uh, although the what we did was never released, that's because he didn't play trumpet on it. He only played synthesizer. Which is amazing because you know, in my limited knowledge of Miles, he really this was a a period where he disappeared off the record. I mean, he was probably still in contract with Columbia, but he wasn't making a lot of records in 78. He wasn't, he wasn't making anything. And according to the movie, that was the whole thing was a caper about uh, trying to get some product out of some new product out of miles, new product out of miles with him. I'm surprised you haven't seen the movie. You know, I got to tell you, and I will, but I much prefer to do primary source interviews with you guys about it i don't i mean to me it's a movie or it's a book it's like no i get a chance to talk to gary bartz about miles i get a chance to to talk to larry coriel about wolfgang down or i get to i mean this time i was just with wolfgang well you said you were going to go next year to germany you're telling me you just you just called no it was that next year came and that was this year 2016 (laughs) oh that's right that's right we celebrated wolfgang's 50th anniversary in the business with an incredible, two incredible concerts. You know, I want to I want to read you this quote, and then I want you to talk about, from your perspective, uh, how this influenced you. This is from a bass player, Bill Crow, and he said, uh, "I love Bill Crow." So do he's I. From Seattle, he's a badass. He said, uh, "That's right, he is." And he and he was one of the he's one of the cats that played with uh, uh, RC, otherwise known as Ray Charles, but. Uh, he said, um, Kenny Clark was one of the guys who changed the way drummers play because he couldn't play the bass drum that fast. He didn't really have chops to execute things as well. He used a lot of rebound. He wasn't a trained technician. He heard the music in a wonderful, dancey way. He figured out that if he left the 4-4 out of the bass drum and used it for accents and put the time on the ride cymbal, then you could hear the bass player and the piano chords better. He didn't have to work so hard. As soon as other drummers saw what he was doing, Max Roach took it to another level, as did Roy Haynes. Can you talk about that style and how Haynes, uh, you know, he, how how Haynes accentuated that style from um, from Kenny Clark? Well, I don't think Roy Haynes did that. Tell me what you think he did. Well, I don't know what he did. All I know is when I worked with him, he he. He always played four beats to the bar on the bass drum, to, so he would know where. So we would all know where it was. And all the syncopated accents and stuff, at least in my experience, he he performed those against that steady four. He was playing against the time. Well, he was playing. Maybe I'm thinking about Elvin Jones. I'm not sure. Now I'm getting confused. <laughs> no, I, but, I, yeah, um, go ahead. But, um, you know, it's nice what you said about Kluke, you know, Kenny Clark. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that he, he didn't have many, I didn't know he was low on chops. I thought his chops were pretty good, but, but whatever. Well, that was Bill Crow talking. Bill Crow was just saying, yeah, yeah how he used, uh, I guess I'm going back to our first interview and you, you were humbled at a point because you said, there was a period in the in the early '60s where you just knew, as a player, you were not up to snuff. You didn't have the chops, and I'm just trying to figure out um, if you, the most unorthodox drummer you played with, or if there was a drummer 
that helped you become a professional musician? Well, they all did. They all helped me. They, they were all good drummers when I played this. And when I talk, we, you know, what I'm talking about Bernard is... Bernard Sure. Uh, Elvin Jones, Roy Haynes, Bob Moses. Bob Moses is really underrated. Tony Williams. All those guys were fantastic. I guess early, what I'm talking about is early on when you had to cross that threshold when you knew you were not up to snuff. I just transcribed some of our interview when you were... You just... uh, well, I guess I was being very modest. I mean, once I got to New York, my, my chops were happening. <laughs> I, I'm sure I was able to improve, but when I, when I first played with Chico, that's the first thing that people talked about was my chops. Yeah, I just uh, it's it, to me it was like when what, what Crow was talking about. It was just the uh, you know today you hear uh, just so much backbeat in music and and it almost sounds like machine gun fire. And what today? Yeah. Well, there's there's very there's no really strong viable jazz scene today in the states. In the world, the internet has made sure that. That has disappeared. Jazz musicians are playing for nothing now. We we are in a very serious problem with the relationship of economics to art in the United States, and I think it also extends to Europe. Very frightening. I agree. Um... Can you explain? I don't know how young players who are good are going to come out of school and, and make any kind of a living because they have they they play for so little money. Hey, right. In the in the past, when you were a barefoot boy in New York, I mean, the cost of living kept up with uh, minimum wage. Or if you were on, you oh, I don't know. I don't know about that either. Oh, it, I just, it definitely did. That particular time, I didn't care. I don't even remember talking money with anybody for the first 10 or 15 years of my career. Right. Well, because you were into making, you were just into the music. But I'm talking about, by you can look back at the statistics, 67, 68, the cost of living kept up with minimum wage. You could live, but you can't live with paltry money now. Uh, I, I want to go back to this point. Uh, why, is, why is art not, why is a musician like Dizzy, or, you know, who used to be treated with in the same respect as a doctor or a lawyer, how have we gotten to a point where musicians are not even considered, not even considered a profession anymore? How did we get, how does that happen? Well, I don't think it's that bad, but it, it happened, I think, because of the technology made it impossible to have a viable recording industry with certain exceptions. I mean, there are people who are still selling records. And the record companies are finding ways to, to do that. And we just made a deal. I reorganized the 11th house with Randy Brecker and Alphonse Muzan. And we made a record at the beginning of this year, which will be released in the summer. It's, it's a new 11th house record. Instead of playing the old compositions from the 70s, everybody composed new stuff and it came out very nice. Um, and I wish I wish there was a way I could let you hear it. 
Well, I mean, I can give you my address or, maybe, you know, send me. Oh, I, I wouldn't know how. I just have it in my computer. I would not know how to make it possible for you to hear it. Okay. Well, I, I guess, how did you bypass this, this? Where do you live in Tucson? I sure do, yeah. Well, why don't I fly out? To, next time I fly out to Tucson. No, you're calling. I'll, 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 I'll come over to your place. <laughs> we'll plug into the speakers, and you can hear the whole thing, fully mixed and mastered. Okay, I'm. I'll pay for half your plane ticket. By the way, too. Nah, nah, you don't have to. Hey, do no, I want to talk to you. How? Okay, so you just made a really good point, and I and and um, about how technology has sapped the any type of touring jazz economy, jazz circuit. How? I mean, could you Brecker Muzon? Uh, Coriel, did you bypass the albatross of technology only based on the, based on your reputation? How did you get around it in order to make it a commercially viable thing? We had a very good record company. Can you highlight it? Because I'd like to, to highlight the positive people. Yeah, it's called Savoy Jazz. Okay, well they've been around forever. How and, and explain yeah. explain how. Explain the values and how they treated you and how they got it to a point to make it successful. Well, we had a one-week one week run at the Blue Note in, I believe, August. And they came down, unbeknownst to me, they came down and they heard the band and then they said uh, they got a message to me that they wanted to sign us. And it was a decent deal and I, I went ahead and you know, signed the contract, and I paid the guys some money to come come to Florida at, at, the, at the beginning of this year in January. In the first five or six days of January, we recorded the record, and it came out terrific. Well, I want to hear it. I, I want to. I want you to. I want. I want you to follow up on coming out here. You you, you can crash my my wife and kids, and we'll we'll, we'll have a barbecue and everything. But. Uh, but I want to hear that record with you in person. Yeah, I think it's I think it's one of the greatest records ever made. Why Why do you feel it that sounds, way? It sounds weird coming from me because I'm on it, but every time I listen to it, I think, man, this is right up right up here with Kind of Blue, or whatever that Miles record was. Did you have any piano on it? Muzan put some piano on there. Oh, wow. But the, the original keyboard player was not well enough to play, so I used Julian to play some of the keyboard roles with his uh, pedals on guitar. How how much of it was done live? We're all, all warm bodies in the studio together. Uh, I don't remember, man. It was like insane. Nobody got any sleep. Just just listen to the record. There was a lot of overdub, overdubbing and a lot of people staying up all night working on the arrangements and the, the certain bass lines and, you know, but was I mean I mean I, I guess all I'm saying is, uh, you Alphonse Brecker Julian in the studio burning did that happen? To a degree, yes. Okay. Um, I want to throw out a few names to you. See the last time that you have even connected with these cats, Columbus Baker. Uh, he's still around. Right. Uh, played rhythm guitar with the Free Spirits. Yeah, he's still around. I mean, that was the era when we, anybody would, everything could go with everything because it was uh, the birds and <laughs> Procol Harum and, and Beatles and LSD and, uh, you know, but Chip is doing great. 
And then uh, Chris Hills. Uh, I'm trying to get to this cat. I got his number. He's out in. Uh, I think. Oh man, he he's a recluse. I mean, he doesn't really come out. <laughs> right. But I assume he's okay. And then this other cat, Ted Gurky. Ted Gurky was a real cheerleader for the free spirits, and he lives in San Jose, and he's doing great. You know, yeah, just uh, you know, the theme of the show seems to be loyalty. Uh, today and I wanted I was hoping you could just share with the audience a, a an incredibly spiritual moment of music on the bandstand that you shared with Jim Pepper every time I played with Jim Pepper it was, it was incredibly spiritual I mean it, he was very consistent every time he put that horn in his mouth he did stuff that was unbelievable I mean, Bob Moses had the wherewithal about 15 years ago to release some uh, bootleg tapes from a club in New York that has great playing from Pepper and great playing from Randy Brecker and Dave Liebman and Joe Beck, I think. That wasn't the, but that was, that's not the Free Spirits. What was that called? Yeah, that was that was during the Free Spirits time. I mean, we. Everything was loose, man. We'd invite people to sit in, you know. Well, that's all, and that's what I'm pushing for is just, and, and I wondered, it was loose, and can you attribute that, how much can you attribute that to just regular cats uh, taking mind-expanding drugs? Oh, I don't know. All I know is that with or without the drugs, these guys could all play. Right. Is Julie, so I want to go back to this crisis in, in monetary value for musicians uh, Julian's got a gig, a gig in on Tuesday nights. You sat in. Um, does he get paid for the gig? I don't think so. But he he does a lot of other stuff. He's teaching at a college. He works with a lot of pop musicians. He's he's up for he's up for being a guitarist involved in a Russian ballet. L.A. You know they have a lot of stuff like that in L.A. He's doing fine. Okay, so forget about Julian, but you just said that there's a crisis. So, I mean, can you can you give an example of this crisis? Well, Julian tells me that if he calls somebody for a gig, um, or somebody calls him for a gig, they automatically assume that he's going to do it for free. And if he asks for money, the guy doesn't call back. Wow. Wow. That's that's what it's like. What is so that? We have to we have to find ways to to do our music and do our creativity and also get a get a good business model. One thing I've done I've started composing a lot of classical music and I've written two operas, and one of them was already performed twice, and those were good paydays. Why is there why is there money for opera and not improvisational melodic invention? Well, there's a lot of improvisation in my first opera. I would li- that's another well, but I'm saying like uh, Charlie Parker. I, I just find this to be so disingenuous. I mean, he got his Walk of Fame star at the Apollo, and they're doing a two night like a Friday and Sunday show about Charlie Parker, and it's an opera. It's a freaking opera because that's where the money is. It's like, what is this? 
What, what is it? Why, why is it so predicated on this this classif- classical classicalization of of music? It's it, it just to me, it's just not authentic. It's it's not it's not healthy. I mean, you're you're doing that. The money's there, though. I don't know. I mean, money's a relative term. term. I mean, I'm not rich or anything. I'm able to pay my bills just barely, but I'm very happy. Exactly. I'm working on a Gershwin transcription this afternoon, which I need to get back to. I'm going to let you get back to it. Do, do, uh, just tell me quickly about Wolfgang. I mean, who did you... What, what Wolfgang was amazing at his 50th anniversary. <laughs> and it was a real, it was a real showcase of European jazz. He had a, he had the United Jazz and Rock Ensemble, especially uh, the drumming of John Heisman was amazing. Oh my God, I love that cat. He, he had all these German uh, musicians who could play their tails off. But the real star of the show was uh, was Wolfgang, and he got got up there on the piano and played his tail off. The guy's he's eighty years old now, and he just keeps getting better. Was was Klaus Klaus Dol, Dolginger there? Klaus was there. Yeah, I need to get. See, I have been. I called Brian Auger this week, and he was he got me Klaus's number. But I need to tap into those European cats. I, I mean, if you can get me to Wolfgang, I would really love that. I'd love to talk. Oh to man, them. you were talking to the wrong guy. Every number I get, I lose. <laughs> no, but I mean, anyway, just go to go to the website. All right, I'll check it out. Hey, Larry, listen. I'm just I'm yeah. just not one of those cats, you know. Hey. No sweat. I mean, I, I, listen, I've been burrowing. I'm, I'm getting calls while I'm on air from Benny Maupin. The guy hasn't called me in seven years. I've been trying to get him on the show. It'll work. Who's that? Benny, Benny Maupin. Who's that? Be, Benny Benny was uh, a pretty prodigious, uh, uh, you know, multi-readist for Herbie, uh, among other things. But, you know, started out in Horace Silver's band. Benny Maupin, M-A-U-P-I-N. You definitely know who he is. You mean Benny Maupin? Thank you. Maupin. Oh, Benny, he's one of my best friends. Right, but you can't find his number, right? <laughs> oh, I had I would have no idea how to find him. No, what I'm saying is he, like... He yeah, called you. He did. He finally called... Right. He fi- finally, after pounding... So, I mean, Heisman... Dolinger, Dolinger, I need, I got to find those guys, um, and uh, and Wolfgang, too. I mean, if, if uh, I, that, that's the European continent, I, it's, it's one I still need, still need to vet pretty heavily. Um, yeah, you should, you should do that, but just know that if you get a hold of Wolfgang Downer, he's probably going to have to do the interview in German. That'd be, yeah, well, that, that'll be a trip in itself. Uh, Larry, um, um, Go back to your 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 work, um, and we'll talk soon, man. It was, it's it's always it's always great to talk to you, and I'm really now I'm really excited to see this this Miles movie, considering it revolves around you, but you never mentioned it. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't realize it until my son saw it and told me what it was about, and I, and I said, oh man, that's when I did the thing with Miles. But the thing I did with Miles. Is one of the highlights of my life, and nothing can denigrate that. I'm just—I don't care if they omitted my name, because I've got the track. Whenever I pull the track out and listen to it, I—I I just can't believe how beautifully Miles behaved as a mentor to me. I—I I appreciated that most. He was trying to assist me in my development, which I think is. Dizzy was also like that. I think that's the highest 
colon. Bef- well, okay, but you just opened up a door there. Can you just give an example of either Dizzy or Miles, how they helped you? I mean, uh, I mean, had you... Well, if, you, if, if Dizzy didn't like what you were playing, he'd make a face. <laughs> and then if you started changing what you were doing and he smiled, you, you knew that you got the message. Dizzy was very intuitive. With Miles, it was specific stuff. He said, use more space. He said, use more space. Make, put more holes in, and, and don't finish your phrases. That was the best thing I ever learned from him. Hmm. Never finish a phrase. Was that, was this March 2nd, 78 date, uh, the first time that, that he mentored you or, or you must have crossed paths before that? Yes. No, that was the first one. Miles was great, man. He just, he just wanted to make music and help other cats out if he liked the way you played. I mean, look at what he did with Mike Stern, with Keith Jarrett, with Chickaria, Lenny White. He helped all those guys out. Yeah, he was like a, basically a really good guy. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, probably extremely misunderstood by, uh, by. Oh, but that's that was part of the that was part of the appeal. That was part of the shtick. All right, Larry. Well, I mean, uh, what an honor. Um, yeah, man. We'll... Right before he went on stage one time, he said to one of his musicians, he says, watch this stuff. I'm going to turn my back to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so he did that stuff on purpose just to, you know, that was his little bit, little bit of showbiz shtick, I guess. Right. Well, Mr. The thing is, I just want people, people like you were making sure that the world does not forget Miles because he's too important to forget. Well, I don't want him to forget Dizzy or James Moody or, you know. Oh, Moody was the great, Moody was the greatest. I know, I know. And it's, you know what it is? It's, it's not about preservation. It's about promotion. And ultimately these cats will come around again, but you know whether they're going to learn how to feel the music, whether they're going to be able to integrate among all genres of music. And ultimately this idea of saying, well, if it can't, if it's not quantifiable, it can't be monetized until we get over that hurdle. Um, I mean, it's great that cats like yourself, you know, you guys are, you've been, you've had careers and you're still, you're still in your career, but for younger cats, it's a daunting task, especially with the zeitgeist going on. Uh, well, I'm sure, I'm confident regarding the younger players that something will happen individually. Oh, you know what? My phone is dying. Okay. And, and on that note. Adios. We'll see you soon. All right. See you later. Cheers, Larry. We'll be right back on the Jake Feinberg Show. 